Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries. Welcome to you and thank you for joining me today. Today we're going to be back in our volume of the book, Portraits of Yeshua Study, as we look in part two, the Torah, and we're considering lesson eight of part two, the wonder worker. We're in the book of Exodus. We have talked recently about Moses' birth, him being the hidden babe, a small portrait of Jesus even as the babe that came, the son of the living God, to save and rescue us with a special mission as Moses had. And we talked about the great I am. We talked about Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush and the Lord revealing his name, his forever memorial name to Moses as the great I am. And now today we saw where Moses had the call at the burning bush to go back to Egypt. And so Moses was on his way back. Now we want to see the picture of Jesus as the wonder worker, the wonder worker. This week we take a look at the picture of Jesus revealed in the early chapters of Exodus here as the wonder worker, the miracle working God. We're going to read some scriptures to begin with here. We want to be in first in Exodus chapter 3, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 20, and then read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, meaning the Lord, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, 
I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. Next, we want to look at and read also from Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 23. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod. And he, meaning God, said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first son, that they may believe the message of the latter son. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two sons, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So shall he be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt, and see whether they are still alive. 
And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So here we see the finality and completion of this call that we began to look at last week to Moses as Moses encountered the great I Am. We see Moses' calling and his ministry being laid out before him. We see Moses here interacting with God about his mission. With Moses recounting for us about the Egyptian bondage, its oppression, and God's response to Pharaoh and his atrocities, now we see that God made it clear to Moses his calling. Moses and God had this back and forth. Moses kept giving God all kinds of excuses, but God's will prevailed. Notice in Exodus chapter 4, if we continue reading 21 through 23 of chapter 4 of Exodus, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So God gives a warning to Pharaoh. Here we're going to see play out over the next several chapters, 10 specific plagues. And the 10th one is the worst of all of them. And Pharaoh is warned here early in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. God gives Pharaoh specific warning. If you harden your heart through all of this that I'm going to be doing, and you refuse and you refuse and you refuse, and you don't let me take my son into the wilderness and be free of you, then I will kill your son if you remain hardened to me and keeping my son. God has given him plenty of warning. Pharaoh had no excuse. God is just, and he will deal with evil and with evildoers in his time and in his way. Notice it was the time for God to act. What time is that? The kairos time in the Greek, it would be. The appointed time, the season, the exact perfect timing, meaning that God had, in essence, set a timer, and it was clicking along all of those years until finally it dinged, and now it was the time. What time is that? The fulfillment of the time God had set. When did God set that time? He set it in Genesis chapter 15 in the promise to Abraham. When God prophesied to Abraham about his descendants and about God giving them their promised land, he said in that prophecy in Genesis 15 that they would be serving another nation for 400 years. And at the end of that 400-year time slot, God would deliver them and bring them to their land. So now is the time that timer deemed. It's the time that God had set and appointed. The 400 years have passed. They've been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. Now, 
God has allowed this 400-year period for a couple of reasons. It was prophesied to Abraham, and God knew that it would be a 400-year time slot. It was also a time of oppression in the land of Egypt, where God was giving Jacob and his family a place of hiding and provision since the time of Joseph. But now another Pharaoh had arisen. He had a different heart toward the Hebrew people. He was scared because God blessed and multiplied them greatly. So he decided to oppress them. Now, God was only going to tolerate this for so long, and he had told Abraham how long he was going to allow it. Then God had promised he would deliver his people, and he did. He would judge rightly those who brought these burdens and evils on them. God is always the same, and in this sense, God also fulfilled a prophecy that was written later, but it was in the mind of God even now, and that is this, that if you touch his people, you are touching the apple of his eye, as it says in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 8. We need to understand God may tolerate oppression, but he is always in control. He is always aware. He is always keeping account. He will deliver his people always in his way and in his time. God will always judge the evildoers in his time and in his way. He is a just God. He is a God of justice and righteousness, and he will reward everyone according to his deeds. We see that witnessed for us by two different witnesses. One is Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, where Solomon writes at the end of this book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, he says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus himself speaks of this as well. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, it says this, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So God will have his way, and he will have his say, and he will have it in his day, in his timing. Jesus will reward everyone according to his works. There is a judgment. There is a reckoning day coming. Deliverance from oppression is coming. God will make his name great through this that he will do. How? He will bring judgment on Egypt's evils because Egypt has touched the apple of God's eye, the Jewish people, in Zechariah 2 verse 8. I apologize that I had mentioned Zephaniah 2.8 before, but it is actually Zechariah 2, verse 8. I want to also look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, which simply confirms that Israel is the apple of God's eye. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, it says this, He, meaning God, found him in a desert land, and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness, he encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. The Jews are the apple of God's eye. The Egyptians in this encounter have touched them for a season, but that season now is ending, and their cup of iniquity has filled up. Judgment is certain against the Egyptians by the just and holy God. 
God may use an ungodly nation for his purposes in reference to his people and his will, but they remain responsible before God as to how they treat God's people. They can help them and be kind and caring, as Egypt was under Joseph's time, or they can become oppressive and harsh, warranting God's judgment, such as is the case now with this Pharaoh in Egypt. So God steps into action here on behalf of his people, and he promises ten wonders that he will do that will complete his judgment against the people of Egypt, and those ten wonders will be played out here. These ten wonders are signs or miracles, things that only God could do, and that's proven as we go through the historical account. The root of this word wonders means to separate or to distinguish. These are acts that will separate and distinguish God as special and powerful, those things that are difficult things that only God can do, things that are wonderful, extraordinary, surpassing actions, beyond one's natural power or ability, things that show him to be wonderful, mighty, and distinguished. Miracles, we would call them. The New Testament, Jesus' ministry had a lot of miracles. He was doing miracles because he is and always has been the wonder worker, the miracle-working God. Note here that Jesus, even though they were miracles, he recognized them as holy things of God. In Luke chapter 9, verse 9, we read this passage. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. So Herod has heard about Jesus, this miracle worker, and Herod wants to see him. When we come to Luke chapter 23, verse 8 through 12, we find out why. Herod was so intrigued and wanted to see Jesus. Herod was hoping to see Jesus come before him and do some of these great miracles, some of these great wonders, because Herod refused to reverence God, and Jesus would not play Herod's game. He wouldn't have any part in that. Jesus knew that these were miracles of God. They were mighty acts that set God apart. They were not common or cheap. They were reverent and holy. They were not to be taken lightly or cheapened. And Jesus would not play Herod's game. He didn't treat them as some amusement that he could just do whenever he wanted to for for amusement purposes to please somebody. They were holy of God. And so Jesus had no part in Herod's game in that encounter. The picture of these ten plagues will increase in intensity as Pharaoh hardens more and more. You notice that when we read earlier, it said that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Do you see what happens is Pharaoh made the choice to harden his heart. And so God then says, if that's the way you want it, then that's the way you'll have it. And so God responded to Pharaoh's choice. The final, the tenth plague would be the death of the firstborn. It would be the last and the worst, and it will be discussed in the next episode, in the next lesson. But Pharaoh had been warned about this. God always warns before he brings impending judgment. 
Pharaoh even tried to play games with God during these ten plagues. He tried to play games with God. He said, oh, well, uh, okay, well, I'll give you, I'll let you partially obey. But Pharaoh was still trying to be in control of the situation and of the terms. He did not ever surrender to the will of the Lord. So he said, you know, well, you can, just the men, y'all can go, but leave the women and children here. And, you know, another time he said, oh, just the people, but not the livestock. Pharaoh was still trying to be in control, but God would not have any of that. Beloved friend, let me say this. Partial obedience is the same as disobedience. We don't partially obey God and get brownie points for what we do do. We must obey the Lord in full. Partial obedience is the same as disobedience. So these ten plagues play out. There are ten of them in total. We're talking tonight about the first nine. And they were increasing in their judgments and their plagues. The ninth one was darkness over all the land. Now this is an eerie kind of darkness where you can feel your skin crawl. It is an awful place to be. I had one experience one time that was similar when we explored a, a cavern in uh, on one of our vacation trips, and we went down deep into the cavern. The tour guide turned off the lamp or the lantern, and it was total pitch darkness. It was the kind of darkness that you could feel your skin crawl. It was very eerie darkness. This is the kind of darkness that fell over Egypt in the ninth plague. God is the wonder worker because he is the just one, the judge of all. Just one, not meaning just an adjective or an adverb to describe him, but he is the morally righteous one, the one who is right, the one who is the God of justice, as Micah 6, 8 speaks about. This term is talking about punishing or acquitting each person on the merits of their case, giving people what they truly justly do giving what they deserve, not swayed by personal preferences or partiality. This is who God is, and only He can work this in our lives. God is the just one, where each is treated according to the same standards. In the New Testament, we see Jesus evident clearly in the Gospels as the wonder worker. He wrought many miracles for blessing and drawing people to God to be saved. Later, as the Holy Spirit was passed on to the apostles and they were endued with power from on high to be his witnesses, some of the same things happened with the apostles throughout the New Testament. Note, however, though, the greatest miracle and wonder of all that God ever does is spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. It's also referred to in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. But I want to read Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27. God is speaking here and he says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. The greatest wonder or miracle 
of all that the wonder-working God does is when He makes a person brand new through salvation, when a person is born again of the Spirit of the living God. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he said this, If anyone be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all has become new. That's the greatest miracle, beloved friend, that God ever does, is he takes a heart of stone, someone who was dead in their trespasses and sins, and gives them a heart of flesh, bringing them to salvation, to repentance of their sins, and making them brand new through faith in Jesus Christ. They become brand new, a brand new person from the inside out. That's the greatest wonder. The same standards before a holy, just God apply to all. God's holiness is clear. Man's sinfulness and unholiness before a holy God is also clear. We cannot keep God's holy standards. We are unable. So we have two choices. We can either receive Jesus' payment on my behalf, on our behalf, and be saved, justified by faith, receive God's righteousness, and be acquitted from our sins and made brand new in Christ Jesus. Or we can face the holy God without Christ, relying only on ourselves. And in that sense, if that's our choice, we will be damned to hell forever to the lake of fire because we have rejected the one who came as the payment for our sins. You see, beloved friend, there's no way we can pay for our sins. We cannot earn enough brownie points. We cannot do enough good things. There's no way. The only hope for us is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God who died in our place, taking the payment for our sin. And when we believe in that, by the Spirit of the living God, we are saved. We are born again of the Spirit of God. We are made brand new in Christ Jesus. And God then takes that old heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh and makes us brand new. The greatest miracle He ever does. Praise be to God. God is always just. Even in His judgment, He has provided the way for all who will believe. Because First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to do it because He's a promise keeper. He said He would and He will do it. But he's just to do it because the death sentence for your sin and mine has already been paid on my behalf and on your behalf. When we receive it by faith and we apply it to our lives and we ask him for his forgiveness, believing in Jesus' blood for the payment of our sins, God is just then to forgive us for our sins. And the holy and just God can then acquit us because the death sentence has been paid by someone else, his own son. Jesus is the just judge of all. He is the wonder worker. He is the one who can rightly judge evil and evildoers who refuse to repent. And he always will. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, it says this, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. 
a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. In Psalm 145, verse 10 through 21, it also speaks of God's righteousness and justice. And then I want us to close out by reading Psalm 78, verse 10 through 12. Psalm 78, verse 10 through 12. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. So it's recounting, Psalm 78 is recounting for us what God did by the wonders in Egypt. Jesus is portrayed through the judgment of God on Egypt because he is the wonder worker, the just and righteous God who faithfully executes righteousness to all. Praise be to God. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, and Lord willing, you can join us again as we conclude part two of the volume of the book in the near future. God bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.